Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. Today we're going to finish our study of the chapter, but as I say that, we are going to, uh, we've already looked at the last part of the passage, so today we're looking at verses 11 through 33, verses 11 through 33. We're going to read through that, and as we do so, I'm going to have the sound booth actually flip through the slides. So Exodus 30, you can read it on the screen, you can read it in your Bible, but we'll begin in verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all its utensils, and the lampstand, and its utensils, and the altar of incense. And the altar burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priest. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. And you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. Lord, you've been so gracious to us as we've looked to the book of Exodus to see that these were not just commands to a people thousands of years ago. But that even here, you're teaching us of Christ. You are preparing them for his coming. You help us to see in greater detail the work that Christ has done. Lord, do that again today. Show us Christ that we may turn to you and give you glory. Amen.
So the title of the sermon is really the three things I want us to look at today. We see in this passage, and, and maybe it seems a little disconnected with the orders that are given, we see a few things happening here in the passage. A census, basically a, a bronze sink, and a recipe for anointing oil. But really, I want to tie those together with a progression of the fact that God's people are ransomed, they are washed, and they are anointed. So ransomed, washed, and anointed is what I want us to look at today. And we see really the ransom given to us there in verse 12. When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord. When you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. And we see later on that this is actually given for the sake of the building of the tabernacle and the sustaining of the tabernacle. So making sure that uh, they have the supplies they need to build it. Remember, there's already been a donation of supplies. But every year there's an ongoing need that the building get taken care of. In some ways we struggle with this even as a church because uh, as you give as much as we'd like to use it for the work of ministry, inevitably there's the cost of taking care of a building. And we're blessed at least with the newer building that that's not a major concern. But there are many churches uh, that have built large buildings or have older buildings that spend much of the money on maintain the building, but it's a practical concern, and they're giving this for the sake of the maintaining of the building and the supplies of the tabernacle. And what they gave was a half a shekel of silver, and because that probably doesn't make a lot of sense to us, it tells us that it's one shekel equals 20 garas, so this is only 10 garas. I'm kidding, that probably doesn't make much more sense to us either. Uh, there were at least three shekels that were used at the time, this was what would normally be called the, the shekel of the temple the, or the temple shekel. And regardless of how wealthy anyone in the society was, they all gave the same amount. Social standing, economic standing didn't matter. They all contributed equally to the building of and, and the maintaining of the tabernacle. So really this is a, an offering that's for all of God's people. But one thing that's really interesting about this census tax was that it says it's for a ransom. Now, as we think of ransom, we think of maybe the idea of kidnapping or something like that. You pay a ransom to get somebody back. Very similar concept going on here. Probably the, the spiritual term that we would often use today would be atonement. They're giving a shekel for their own atonement. They're ransoming themselves. And it even says so that a plague may not break out among you. Now, that's really confusing for us. It's not quite clear why, but there's something about taking a census that's dangerous. You may remember later on, David takes a census, and it's to number the people. And there's this undertone that David wants to know how great is his army. And Joab warms over this, and God judges him for this. This is not something that's to be done. But there is a need that they know how many people there are, and occasionally this has to be done. And so to avoid a plague breaking out among them, they're to take this uh, shekel temple tats or tabernacle tats. And so this would be given every year. They would go before them and they would do it for, again, the sake of atonement. It's tied to this idea of the blessing of being in Yahweh's presence. You are a people who get to enter into the presence of God. And so they're giving to that. And in many ways, that's symbolic. Psalm 49, verse 7 says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. So it's not as though God establishes here, there's a set price, and if you pay the price every year, then atonement's made for you. It's symbolic of the fact that God has atoned for them. He has already delivered them. He has ransomed them from slavery and bondage in Egypt. He's bought their freedom. And so they acknowledge that by giving this ransom. Again, not to accomplish a purpose, but symbolic. And we could say, and even looking ahead, we know that this is also symbolic of the ransom that Christ would pay for them. That atonement would be made for them. And for whatever reason the census is given, it's clear at least that there's probably a military 
reference to this, much as when David counted the people. Often they would count to know how strong is their military as they're considering going into the, or planning to enter into the promised land. How strong is the military? That could explain why it says that the only people who actually pay the tax are males over the age of 20. That would basically be the fighting age, the age of the military. Listen to Numbers 1-3. It says, From 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. And so this is basically the enlistment age. And so they want to know who of the men are capable of fighting should they go to war. And it even talks about that Aaron shall list them. So basically when he takes his census for the military, conscription, joining up with the military, he's to take a ransom for each soldier. Maybe there's even some connection with that idea you're putting your life on the line and you pay this ransom even for your life. And it talks about Aaron listing them. And this would make sense if we, we know the ones who are putting the offering in. Maybe they're taking their names down, jotting it down, but knowing who they are. But there's also this wordplay in Hebrew where the counting of them can also mean the crossing over. And it seems to be the state that you are asked, you are called to basically the census. Now, that kind of happens in our country too. You know, every 10 years we have a census and you get the notification in the mail that you have to respond to the census or you're going to be arrested. By penalty of law, you have to answer the census. And if we're on it, I don't know about you guys, maybe some of you really dig the statistics and you think this is really important, but I never look forward to filling out the census papers. I'm always hoping my, my gracious and kind wife will do that on our behalf. It's not something I like just sitting there and filling out all the paperwork. They're calling for a census every year. They're to come forward, and there's something about crossing past Aaron and putting in that shekel that you're acknowledging that I'm a part of this people. And think of all the implications that would go along with that. The idea of ransom, the idea of atonement. So this really is a spiritual matter, not merely a social matter or a national matter or a military matter. What they're really doing is saying, I belong to God's people. I am a part of those who have been atoned for. I'm a part of the redeemed. I'm a part of the ransomed. I belong to them. So there's almost this commitment they're making to step forward to put that money in and say, yes, I belong to this people. I'm a part of them. And again, they're acknowledging I'm part of the people that gets the benefit, the blessing of being in the presence of Yahweh. That's who I am. I'm one of those. They're identifying as God's covenant people. One commentator, John Durham, said it this way. He says, thus, even so pragmatic and routine a necessity as the financial support of the tabernacle and its ministry of worship is turned into an expression of the central confession of Israel's faith. An existing procedure of counting and taxation was apparently turned from a census with an element of fear, he says, of military service and of divine punishment, to a passing into the ranks of those who would be remembered, each one equally in the place where Yahweh came by promise. So it becomes a spiritual exercise for God's people. We're identifying. We're not just signing up to fight for Israel. We're acknowledging that we're a part of God's people and that we're joining in this blessing. And he talks about the remembering there. It says later on in our passage that... Uh, Verse 16, you shall take atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for service of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. And so this money, this silver's given and much of it's melted down and even becomes really the foundation upon which the poles that hold the tabernacle together are held and many other parts of the furniture so that as God comes into the presence of his people, he sees the silver and he's reminded of them. Not as though God forgets, but it's a remembrance of them. Think about this also would have been a remembrance for God's people. As you enter in, you see the silver and you're reminded, 
That's part of my contribution to the worship of God, for God's presence, for God's house, that God would meet with us. Maybe a uh, modern-day equivalent of that might be when we think of church membership, we have at least two parts that go along with church membership in our church. When you become a member of the church, you come forward and you share a public testimony. You testify that you have become a part of God's people. You testify the work that God has done in your heart and life. And then with that, if you're a new believer, you're baptized into Christ and in many ways into the body of Christ's church. And so they're making a public statement that I belong to God's people in much the same way that we would with church membership. You come forward, you testify before the people, I'm a part of the people of God. And in baptism, symbolically you represent what Christ has done for you. That in Christ, you've been buried with Him and you've been raised to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. And so maybe that's a similar way in which we could think of that today. Now, I think if we're going to talk about this, we have to address the fact that this does come up in the New Testament. This tax. Uh, Jesus actually encounters this, Matthew 17. You guys may remember the passage, but I'm going to have it up for you. We'll look at it. Matthew 17. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tats went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you shall find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So this is the same task that Jesus is encountering here. And they first asked Simon Peter if, Jesus would give the tats. And Simon, probably rashly, as Simon often does, or Peter often does, he says, yeah, of course, he'd do that. And then he comes to the house, and maybe I kind of picture him ready to go up to Jesus and say, you're going to pay that tats, aren't you? Don't forget to pay your taxes. And Jesus says to him, ask him the question, who is it that gets tats? Does a king tax his own son? No, it's his own household. It would go back to himself. There's no point in doing that. Who does he tax? He taxes others. And so Jesus points out that the son is free. And what he's getting at is this, that this tax ultimately, this giving that the people were giving, was not ultimately about the tabernacle or the temple or even the uh, support of the Levites and the priests in the temple. It ultimately was a giving to God. And if that's the case, and Jesus is here as the Son of God, is Jesus obligated to pay a tax? And if we go even further with that, which Jesus doesn't, especially here, but remember that this is a tax of atonement. It's a tax for ransom. Jesus is sinless. He's the Son. He's not obligated to give to the Father because all that is his is the Father's, and all that's the Father's is his. But also, he's one who's sinless. He doesn't need to make atonement for himself. In fact, we know that Jesus is the one who will ultimately pay that tax. He will be the one who pays for the atonement of others, not for himself. His life will be the ransom. That he will give for their life. But it's really interesting as well in this passage that he provides, he gives the full tax. Why would he do that if he's not obligated to do so? If he doesn't ransom himself and if he's not obligated as son to give to God, why does he give here? Well, before I even get there, let me say, you see how he does it as well. Who provides that the tax be paid? God does. 
Look, I've been fishing many times. I really enjoy going fishing. I've never opened a fish up and found money inside. Never happened. It's also never corresponded with the exact amount I owe in taxes. That would be nice. Or in this instance, there's one whole shekel. And remember, the tax is half a shekel, so it pays for Jesus and for Peter. We're going to take care of both of us. So, look, if any of you guys do end up going fishing and finding enough money to pay your taxes and someone else's, I would take one for the team. Okay, but that's just, that's not normal, is it? I found many things inside of a fish. But I digress. Catfish, though, sometimes you can find the weirdest things that they would eat off the bottom. But whatever it is, I haven't found money. Eric, ever found any money inside a fish? Eric probably has fished more than me. Look, this isn't normal. So what's happening here? God is somehow supernaturally supplying for Jesus to be able to give this tax. Don't know what exactly happened. God calls someone to drop it. I'm assuming God didn't bring the matter back together in a creation-type way to create a shekel of his own. Of course, that would mess up if you started just printing random money, right? That would mess up with inflation, but we're not going there. But somehow, perhaps someone slips, they drop it off a boat, a fish swallows it according to God's providential hand, and then Peter catches the exact fish and opens it up, and it's the exact amount for him. Okay, you see the point. God's providing that he be able to do that. Why would he even do it at all, though? Jesus here is demonstrating his active obedience. God has called his people to participate in this, to give for the sake of the temple or back here, the tabernacle. And Jesus does it even though he doesn't have to be atoned for. Even though he's his son, why? Because he's performing the righteous acts that we fail to do. He's satisfying the righteousness that we've fallen short of. Jesus isn't just going to pay for our sins. He's going to provide for us the positive righteousness that we all need. This is the act of obedience of Jesus Christ that we see here. So I bring that up. Obviously, there's a connection with atonement. We're going to talk a little bit about more of that in application. But Jesus is our atonement. He ransoms the price for our freedom. But also we have this interaction where Jesus actually participates in this tax to be for us our righteousness. Secondly, I want us to look at the washing. Now the washing is really just the fact that we have this bowl that's given that they're to make. Uh, another piece of furniture that wasn't addressed earlier. And this is really just a basin or a bowl. It stood on some type of pedestal. There was a stand for it. There's, this is the one item that we've had almost no detail given. Make a bowl, put a stand under it, that you can wash your hands and wash your feet. Not a lot of instruction given. I imagine many of us have different types of sinks in our bathroom. I've seen some that have been made out of wood that has been turned or glass bowls. Probably many of us have, what is it, ceramic or... God's not concerned with how this is made. And it's interesting, in the temple, it ends up being absolutely huge. But no measurements are given. The location's important. The material is important. But no real detail about the size of it. It's to be made of bronze, and we actually will later on see in Exodus 38, verse 8, it says that he made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they give of their mirrors, and where would those have come from? When basically they plundered the Egyptians, when the Egyptians gave them stuff when they were leaving, the women gave their mirrors, and I, in my research I couldn't find out if this would be a mirror like we would think of a glass. More likely it's probably polished bronze that would be reflective. So they're using the bronze to see themselves. But they gave the mirrors which were melted down to make this basin. And the basin... Or the bowl was for ritual cleaning. They had to wash their hands and feet. Remember, not the whole body. Because that's already been done in the ordination ceremony. Now they have to wash their hands and feet, though, every single time that they either offer a burnt offering on the altar. And I haven't really talked about the position of this. But this is positioned between the, bra the brazen altar 
and the entrance to the tent of meeting, which is where the holy place and the holy of holies is. So it's right in between those two because when they go to offer sacrifice, they had to wash beforehand and they'd give a sacrifice. And then if they were to enter into the tent of meeting at all, they always had to wash as well. So it's right in between the two where it would be convenient for washing for either of those. And this is a perpetual command. They're to do it throughout their generations. It says forever for Aaron and his sons. Uh, We understand as well that there's come an end to the Aaronic priesthood. Jesus has come. He now is our high priest. And so um, as your pastor, I'm not obligated to wash my hands and feet before I come. Typically do, but uh, not in a bowl out in the foyer. So it's not as though that has to continue on in that way. But it's repeated, it must be done. Look at verse 21. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout his generations. So much like with the senses, so that a plague would not break out, here we're told they must do it or they will die. So if you were to decide one day, as, your, as a priest, I'm going to come and I'm going to offer a sacrifice, but I'm not going to wash my hands first. Really, There's no reason, because my hands are going to get bloody and dirty anyway, I'll wash them afterwards. You would die. If you thought, maybe even presumed, that you were clean enough to enter into the holy place without washing, you would die. And so there's this death penalty if it's not done. Maybe a New Testament equivalent. And this kind of can help us understand the spiritual realities behind what we're seeing here. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine through 30. And, and consider this because we're not too far away. Let's see, maybe we're an hour away from taking the Lord's Supper here in our church. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine through 30. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now, Paul here is speaking of the Lord's table. When they come together to take communion, some of them, it says, were not discerning the body. And we see elsewhere there's even talk of uh, sinning against one another, uh, unreconciled sin, or unrepented of sin, uh, not reconciliation between brothers. The discerning of the body, I think, probably means the discerning of Christ's body in the elements to understand that Christ is spiritually present in the bread and in the juice. And because of that, because some have just done it flippantly perhaps, they haven't thought about it, they haven't meditated on Christ and his work when they took the table, some of them have gotten sick in the church in Corinth and some of them have actually died. I thought maybe that's a, a New Testament equivalent. They approach that which is holy with very little thought for it. They didn't discern the purpose of it and what it meant to come before these things, and it cost them their life. Now, I have to assume that this wasn't a unique circumstance in the church in Corinth, and so in many ways, we're warned the same way, and without divine guidance, we probably cannot discern if the Lord takes somebody home, because even as a believer, they take at the table, but they weren't really understanding or thinking about the purpose of it. Now, I say all that to say, Prepare your hearts for the Lord's table. That's not to say, don't take it. I think if you're a believer, it is a spiritual blessing that we get to take at the Lord's table. And at the same time, we approach God in worship and at the table with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. So balance those things as we go to the table later. But this is also an important reminder because it shows us that even the the priest were sinners that need to be washed. None of the priests were good enough just to enter into God's presence or to offer a sacrifice to Him without first being washed and cleansed. They're sinners too. Isaiah 52, 11 says, Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. So speaking to the priests, they're being warned. Go out from the midst of her. Make sure you purify yourself before you touch these things. Another commentator, John Curid, says, 
the very ones who are to operate the services of atonement and reconciliation are themselves in need of cleansing from their own sinful hearts and deeds. The men of the priesthood themselves, in other words, are profane and sinful. And so this is a reminder for them. It's a reminder for us that none of us will ever enter into the presence of God based on our goodness, our cleanness. Even the priest, even your pastor is a rotten sinner that needs to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. There's not one of us that's good enough to stand before him on our own. 1 Corinthians 6.11 testifies to this. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We're in need of that washing, all of us, if we're to enter into his presence. Now, as we look at these priests, we have a contrast that's given to us in the book of Hebrews again, that Jesus is a priest like these priests, but not like these priests. Because Jesus is sinless high priest. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now that's remarkable if we understand this in light of what we see here in the book of Exodus. If we know the background, if we know that every priest that's ever ministered had to be first ordained, which involved a full body washing. He had to be anointed. We're going to look at that in a second. But And then still each and every time he came to serve God, he had to purify himself. He had to wash his hands and feet before he could serve there. Why? Because he's a sinner. And because he sins over and over again. He doesn't reach some state of perfection. And then we have Christ who doesn't have to make atonement or be washed over and over again. He's sinless. And so likewise, we understand, and I'll touch a little bit more on this on the, in the conclusion, but we understand that we too are those who have been washed by Christ. We've seen that already back in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Ephesians 5 is another one. It's speaking of, uh, union with Christ and how marriage is a model of union with Christ. In Ephesians 5, 25 through 26, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so again, Jesus is sanctifying his church. He's cleansing his church. He's washing them, it says here, with water of the word. Uh, of water with the word. So his word he uses to cleanse us. We're going to look at more later about other cleansing. Thirdly, anointing. This really is covered in uh, verses 23 through 33. It describes the recipe for the anointing and then tells us what all is to be anointed. And what's to be anointed here? You may have caught the list. It, it's every single piece of furniture in the tabernacle. It's the fabric of the tabernacle as well. It's the priests who serve in the tabernacle. There, there's nothing that's entering there that's not getting anointed. Having this oil sprinkled on them. We're going to talk about the reason for a second, but first it gives the recipe. Uh, many of these things we don't or are not able to identify today, but... They're the finest of rare spices. Many of these didn't even grow in the area in which they were. They would have had to have been imported. And again, probably into Egypt initially. So people had brought them out. They're rare. Maybe they're, they're holding on to them, but they give them for the worship of God and the anointing. So uh, verse 23, take the finest spices, the choicest spices, of liquid myrrh, sweet-smelling cinnamon, uh, aromatic cane, and then of cassia. Now, I know we're familiar, probably really familiar with cinnamon. Uh, myrrh, would, myrrh is a sap that when you cut certain trees, uh, it's a, I won't remember the scientific name, it's balsam myrrh 
but you cut it and it leaks out or drips out this sap that hardens. And then you can take it and use it for myrrh. And apparently liquid myrrh in that day, which apparently no longer exists, but statate was a very uh, rare and expensive uh, perfume in that day, a um, sweet-smelling scent. And so that's likely what was used here. So again, we couldn't even replicate that if we wanted to. There's some myrrh we could get. The other things, uh, the cinnamon we talked about, we know cinnamon. But the, the, the stalk, the cane, is not real clear. It sounds like something that would come from uh, a reed of sort by or a lake or river. But again, that's hard to identify. And then uh, cassia as well may have been the flower of the cinnamon bush. We don't know exactly what it is, but either way, it would have been a sweet-smelling perfume, and olive oil would have been what tied it all together or what would be scented by it. And we've covered this already a little bit back in chapter 25, verse 6, but it was part of those things that were donated for the tabernacle. Exodus 25, 6, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, which we looked at last week. So all these things were given by God's people. Maybe we could be encouraged that they're giving their best for the work of the Lord. And we could be encouraged as well that we, God calls us to give our best for his work. And then all these things are anointed or consecrated for the Lord. That's really a dedication of something or it's inauguration into service. These things are being set apart to serve in the tabernacle. Everything that gets sprinkled by this anointing oil, all the fabric, all the furniture, the priest, they are being set apart to the Lord. They're being set apart as holy. That they're given for serving the Lord. Maybe even as part of making someone or something fit for service to the Lord. It's no longer just a normal piece of fabric. It has been anointed and now set apart to serve the Lord. Look at verse 29. It says, you shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. Uh, this is one place I pretty much disagree with the ESV. Uh, the Hebrew isn't real clear, and I think the New King James Version, the Revised Standard Version, both do a better job of translating it. They say, you shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. I think that's probably a better rendering. Uh, there seems to be nowhere in the Old Testament where it's recounted that just touching some element that had been anointed would make you holy. Rather, nothing unclean that had not been set apart for the Lord would be allowed to touch those things that had been anointed. And that makes a lot more sense. I think that's what's being communicated. And then verse 33, we have the threat of death again. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. So much like we looked at last week with the incense, if you use that incense for anything other than, even if you make it, and it's not for the worship of God, or you use it for anything other than the worship of God, you would die or be cut off from the people of God. Same thing here. Maybe you light the anointing oil. You go into the temple. You think, that's really a good smell. I'm going to make some for some cologne for me to wear. My wife really likes that smell too. And she's going to love it when I wear it. You're cut off from the people of God, which can have a double meaning. It means cast out of God's people. Maybe the equivalent of what we would say today of excommunication. You're being declared not to be a part of God's people, His covenant people. In this sense, it's because your lack of obedience to God's command demonstrates that you're not really following God. You haven't honored Him. You haven't revered Him the way you should. But it can also have a connotation of death. So how does all this apply to us? I think one thing is to see that there really is no privileged status in the tabernacle. All gave equally to it. They were all equal parts of God's covenant people. Even the priests that served had to be washed and had to be sanctified with anointing oil before they could serve. People's riches and their possessions don't really matter when it comes to the day of judgment. Right? God's not going to care how much you accumulated in this life. What ultimately matters, what determines anything for them and really for us is, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? 
That's all that matters. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Stuff doesn't matter ultimately. Relationship with Christ does. And so in Christ we have an eternal inheritance. Secondly, the need for ransom or atonement. We understand that we too need to be ransomed and atoned for. This is a quote from C.H. Spurgeon. Now remember I talked about that the base upon which the poles were uh, held were, were made out of silver. And that's part of what he's talking about here. But he says, the foundation of the worship of Israel was redemption. The dwelling place of the Lord their God was founded on atonement. All the boards of incorruptible wood and precious gold stood upon the redemption price. And the curtain, curtains of fine linen and the veil of matchless work, workmanship. And the whole structure rested on nothing else but the solid mass of silver which had been paid as the redemption money of the people. So you gather he's arguing that redemption's the basis. Every time they would go in and they'd see that silver there, they would say, not just I contributed to that, but my atonement is a part of what's happening here. Redemption, ransom, atonement is the basis upon which I enter into the presence of God. Without ransom, without atonement, I cannot enter into the presence of God. The same is true for us. How do we do that? Well, the answer isn't that we pay a half shekel a year, right? You're not buying salvation by giving in the offering plate. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 answers this for us. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Okay, so understand silver or gold is too cheap. It perishes. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So all of us need to be ransomed. We need atonement. And how are we going to do that? Well, it talks about feudal ways inherited from their fathers. Their fathers being these that we're reading about in Exodus. God's calling that which he declared for them to do, I think, even feudal. It didn't actually accomplish a purpose. It was only symbolic. It was a shadow of the reality. And what is the reality? The reality is that silver is not enough to buy salvation. Gold's not enough. There's not one of us that has enough that we can atone for the price of our sin. We can't buy our souls. But Christ has done that. He has paid the atonement. And what was the cost? Notice the word precious. We don't always think of it this way. Sometimes we say, oh, that's precious. I don't know. That's In the South we say that all the time. Oh, that's precious. Isn't that precious? Precious here means rare, valuable. The precious blood of Christ that is of greater value than gold and silver is what bought our atonement. Matthew 20, 28 even tells us that this is the purpose of the incarnation. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is why Jesus came. So what we're seeing here is even testifying, first of our need for ransom, but also telling us that Christ will come to pay that ransom. And so I want to encourage you, have you trusted in Jesus Christ to pay that ransom? There's a debt that all of us owe for the sin which we've committed. The wages of sin is death. And we're going to pay for that eternally, either in hell or is paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. So which are you hoping in? Which are you trusting in today? There's not another option. Either hell or Christ. And I don't want to portray hell as if, you know, you hang out there for a while and you've paid atonement. It is eternal. There's nothing that we could do. Even eternal suffering isn't enough to pay the price for our sin. Thirdly, the idea of washing. And in some ways, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, combines the idea of the washing and the anointing with oil. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, I think I've hit that every week, uh, every week now for a while in our sermons, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Our hearts sprinkled clean. Think of that anointing oil being sprinkled on everything. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean. And then likewise we see our bodies washed with pure water. There's probably some degree in which he's speaking of the idea of our hearts sprinkled clean. That anointing oil points us to the blood of Jesus Christ that we've been cleansed in. And the water here, washed in the water, may well refer to the baptism or the spiritual reality of the circumcision of the heart that the Spirit accomplishes that's symbolically portrayed in baptism. But we've been sprinkled with His blood. We've been washed by the Spirit. And so as we think about this washing, how might we be washed? How might we be cleansed? Well, I want to start by just saying, Jesus Christ who brings that cleansing. But God's word also talks about other ways in which we are washed. For example, confession. And I don't mean going to the priest. Listen, 1 John 1, 8 through 9, it says, If we have, uh, sorry, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So again, not confession to a priest. What is he speaking of? He's really speaking of what happens in salvation. We confess our sins to God and we look to Christ for forgiveness of sins. And we're washed clean of that from all unrighteousness. I said already his blood, I'll hit on that again. There's a few passages that demonstrate that in the New Testament. 1 John 1, 7 But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. Ephesians 5, 26 that we looked at earlier, talked about uh, sanctifying her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so the word also brings cleansing to us. John 15, 3. Jesus said to them, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And if I remember correctly, this is in the context, again, of them wanting to wash themselves and not have Jesus wash their feet. But already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. John 17, 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so... Maybe here we're talking about a little bit different cleansing. We've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, by confession of our sin, by faith we become saved. All unrighteousness has been dealt with, but there's this ongoing way in which we're being sanctified, made more and more like the image of Christ. And one way that's done is by washing with the word. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I could say it a different way. How do we protect ourselves? How do we keep ourselves clean? Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And then 1 Peter 1.22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So here, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And so God's word, how it teaches us, how it instructs us, even our obedience is one way that he's Continuing to cleanse us. So I want to encourage you. All of us need that atonement. And that's only found in Jesus Christ. Finally, if you are a Christian today, understand that you have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. That you stand now in Christ as one who is sinless, even though you still sin. God looks upon you and sees you in Christ as sinless, as clean, as pure, as ready and anointed to enter into his presence. Understand as well that we've been anointed with the Holy Spirit for service to the Lord. 
We've been ransomed from feudal ways. Maybe we could say to the proper way, to service of God. We've been made fit to serve Him. We've been set apart as holy to the Lord for His service. And that ought to encourage us that all that we do, think again of that tabernacle. What was that anointing oil to be used for? One purpose. The incense, one purpose. Even if you like how it smells, we're not using it in our home. Likewise, God has sanctified us for His service. Whatever we do in life, and there's a great variety of things that God may call us to, but all of it should be done for the glory of God. It all should be done in service to the Lord. Is that foremost in our thought when we go about our daily activities, or is it about serving me? Maybe even as noble as it sounds, serving my family. But God calls us, He set us apart as Christians to serve Him. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have ransomed us from the feudal ways that we have inherited. Lord, we know that that looked different for Israel, but for many of us, we were raised in homes that maybe with parents who didn't know you, maybe who had beliefs in other religions. Lord, for probably all of us, we've been ransomed from the feudal thought that we are good enough to take care of this ourselves that we are deserving of salvation. Lord, we thank you that you've ransomed us from that. Lord, we pray even for those in this room who maybe yet have not been ransomed. Help them to see the futility in hoping in anything other than Jesus Christ for salvation. And we pray that by your Spirit you would wash them in the blood of Christ. Lord, may we be those who are counted as your people. Lord, that we would commit to your body, that we would publicly profess faith. Lord, that we would join your people in baptism, signifying our union with Christ. Lord, would there be no one, or we pray there would be no one here, who would leave today trusting in that which is futile. Attempting to enter into the holy place without first being washed. Lord, lead us to Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.